0: Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and in this episode of Ms. Tree Theatre, I'll be finishing up recap and commentary on the debut serial of Max Allen Collins and Terry Beatty's iconic private eye, Ms. Michael Tree. Parts 4 through 6 of Eye for an Eye were featured in issues 4 through 6 of the black and white anthology magazine Eclipse, published by Eclipse, between January and July 1982. Ms. Tree shares page space over the course of these three issues with the likes of Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers' Coyote, Trina Robbins' Dope, Don McGregor and Gene Colan's Ragamuffins, and also work by Harvey Pekar, Michael Kaluta, Rick Geary, and uh, lots of other talented creators. Chapters four and five of Eye for an Eye are the standard eight pages. And the issues those are found in are under the, till now, standard Eclipse magazine cover illustration of the fantasy variety. But the conclusion of this mystery adventure in Eclipse number six is double-sized, 16 pages. And this issue has a great Mizz painted cover by Paul Gulesi. A gloved hand holds a firearm over a tabletop scattered with various items. Or are they clues? A folded newspaper? An ammo clip? A rotary phone off the hook And an 8 by 10 glossy of Ms. Tree herself Chapter 4 of the serial, called If a Tree Falls Opens with Ms. Tree's discovery of her Murdered husband's little black book She's hoping that a name or names therein Will help lead to her husband's killer One of the people whose names was found in the book Assistant District Attorney Carl Edwards was himself murdered by an unknown hitman who was then gunned down by Ms. Tree before he could offer any information. It's at this point believed that the it was the same mysterious client who put this hitman up to killing both Mike Tree and Carl Edwards. Ms. Tree invites Tree Agency Detective Dan Green to Mike's old apartment She's afraid that her ongoing investigation will interfere with the official police one and wants to consult with Dan away from their business in an unofficial capacity. The apartment had recently been ransacked, and while Dan had no prior knowledge of the address book, both he and Ms. Tree assumed that the book was the thief's target. Dan expresses no interest in continuing Ms. Tree's crusade, citing the piling caseload back at the agency feeling some frustration with her dead husband's secrecy, the private case he'd been working on for deceased D.A. Edwards, little black book. Miss Tree takes her frustration out on a framed picture of she and Mr. Tree. Getting back to business, Michael decides to go through the address book, one name at a time. First name, alphabetically, is Apple Detective Agency. The name doesn't ring a bell, but when she visits Apple's rundown office... She's shocked to find Roger Fremont there, apparently Apple's one and only employee. Roger Fremont was a detective formerly in the employee of the tree agency, but when Roger expressed his displeasure with Michael's ascendancy in the company after her husband's murder, Michael fired his ass, and Roger doesn't seem any too happy to see Michael, she's not buying that. Roger started this business after he got fired. Why? How? Could it be in Mike Tree's address book if it was a new business? Caught in a lie, Roger seems ready to fess up, to dump. But he stops short and then keels over. A silenced bullet had cracked the window and gone right through him. Michael immediately calls an ambulance to take away the still-breathing Roger, and Mike Tree's former police partner, Chick Steele, meets Michael at the hospital and reports evidence of a shooter on the rooftop opposite Roger's office. Well, if anything, this assassination attempt tells Ms. Tree that she's on the right track with this address book thing. So she just moves down the list. One name jumps out at her, possibly a relative of Mike's, Anne Tree. She visits Anne Tree's home to find no one there. She peeps through a window, however, and sees a framed photograph, possibly of Anne, and recognizes the mysterious woman Michael had seen at Mike's gravesite. Before she has a chance to leave, Michael's caught snooping by a young boy. She introduces herself as Michael Tree, but is shocked to learn that the boy has the same name. He's called Michael Tree, too. He's Mike Tree, Jr. Chapter five, The Last to Know, begins with this latest revelation. Conversation between Michael Tree and Mike Jr. is interrupted by the arrival of Ann Tree. And the revelations really start to fly. Ann sends Mike Jr. away before giving the story to Michael. Ann was Mike Sr.'s first wife. They were high school sweethearts who married right after graduation. Soon after that, Mike was called away to fight in Vietnam, leaving Ann with a little Mike Jr. in the oven when Mike returned from the war. Anne saw a changed man. They'd grown apart, Mike even going so far as denying fatherhood of the baby. And they divorced. But only recently reconnected. Anne needed help financially, I assume. And reached out to Mike, who had then come to accept Mike Jr. as his child. Anne insists to Michael that there was nothing between them, at least romantically, since reconnecting, and that Mike was truly in love with Michael. Anne thinks Mike would have told Michael about this in time. This, however, doesn't dull the sting of all the secrets that Mike has kept from her. Mystery is drawn to Mike's grave, and she's found there by Chick Steele, who says he has some information for her. As Michael has been drawing the attention of the police, she seems to have been present at every successive killing linked to this case, Chick wants to talk to Michael in private. He takes her back to his place. In the comfort of the steel pad, Chick relates that Mike Tree had been paying the rent for Apple Detective Agency. So, add another secret to the pile. Chick also confesses knowledge of Mike's first marriage, but... Agrees with Anne that Mike would have told her in time. And then, and then, (laughs) that awkward pause, which triggers an inner groan every time I see it in a movie, in a show, and here. Grieving widow and the best friend, after one panel stillness, looking at each other. Embrace, kiss, and fall into bed. It's well staged by Beatty, and Collins tries his best. He has two kinds of justification running through Ms. Tree's mind. Attaining a closeness with Mike's best friend, as substitute for Mike himself. And to me, the more believable, but no less comforting, sex with Chick, as revenge for Mike's dishonesty. Whatever the case, as the lovers sleep, a masked, armed figure enters the room, and reaches for that all-important address book. So the revelations really do fly in these two chapters. Uh, what we have here so far is that's a well-crafted mystery, well-illustrated. Terry Beatty's straightforward style continues to suit this story. And there's a lot of story packed into these chapters, especially this chapter 5, the history of the tree family, a little romance, and another threat to Ms. Tree's safety all in the span of eight pages. I really like Beatty's liberal use of zip that dotted or striped pattern that I guess can be cut out and added to drawings to provide shading. I don't think I picked up on it as much in the previous chapters, in previous episode. Uh, Beatty uses it a lot here, almost like a colorist would. Ms. Tree's outfit has one pattern assigned to it, but when she stands up against a car or... A brick wall with a different zipitone pattern. Even though the work is printed in black and white, there's a lot of value, a lot of tone being created. A very effective experiment. Alright, we've got the double-sized concluding chapter of this mystery serial coming right up next. Hi, this is Batman. Whenever I lose my memory, I head over to the BatmanUniverse.net and check out the podcast. Bat Books for Beginners. The Bat Books for Beginners podcast breaks down and analyzes all of my adventures so I can remember how to get to the Bat Cave, which Robin I'm working with, and where I parked the Batmobile. Chris and Jerry, the hosts of Bat Books for Beginners, are honest about how well I'm serving the citizens of Gotham. Sometimes too honest, I'll have to talk to them about that. If you wake up one morning and think you might be Batman and have just lost your memories, go over to thebatmanuniverse.net or iTunes and check out Bat Books for Beginners. Now, if I could just figure out who this old man cleaning the Batcave is, that would be great. I asked my friend Scott Snyder, and he didn't know. Don't be a supervillain. Visit thebatmanuniverse.net and listen to Bat Books for Beginners, also on iTunes. You'll be glad you did. Bat Books for Beginners is part of the thebatmanuniverse.net Bat Family of Podcasts. Don't listen to Bat Books for Beginners when operating heavy machinery or juggling. If you listen to Bat Books for Beginners for more than four hours, call your doctor. Bat Books for Beginners is part of a balanced diet. Okay, chapter six, the final chapter of Eye for an Eye is called Kiss Tomorrow Hello and opens with an armed, masked sneak thief hovering over a bed shared by Ms. Tree and Chick Steel holding the all-important address book. Ms. Tree wakes up suddenly and instinctively reaches for the gun, but the masked figure punches her and runs away. short time later, Michael is nursing a bruised cheek when a pajama chick returns from chasing after the intruder, but coming up empty. He claims to have seen a candy apple red Datsun 280ZX peeling away from the building's service entrance, but failed to get a license plate number. The uh, Datsun 280ZX, by the way, was my dream car when I was a kid. This is most likely the influence of Transformers. My favorite Autobot was Prowl, who, in vehicle mode, was a Datsun painted to look like a police car. Anyway, Chick wants to know what the thief was after, and Michael finally confides in him the existence of the Black Book. There's a strange panel here during Michael's black book explanation where she's getting dressed. Word balloons cover the entirety of both her and Chick's head. It's very hard for me to tell whether this is intentional or whether this is Beatty still finding his way around a panel layout. The page is a six panel grid, and the word balloon placement is fine in the other five panels. This page layout actually does a really good job of breaking down what could be a pretty static explanation scene, different shots of Chick and Michael in various stages of dress, but that panel with their heads covered just stands out, and I'm not sure if it's in a, in a good way. But during this conversation, Michael also confesses guilt for what has transpired between them and promises it won't happen again until Mike's killer is quote-unquote, in the ground which I think is an interesting distinction from being, quote, brought to justice. Ms. Tree makes her way to the agency office, where she's kept a photocopy of the address book and its names, and thinking of the book makes her wonder, is the mystery person someone listed in the book? Or is the book just a list of assassination targets for the mystery person? She brings Dan Green up to speed and assigns him the task of putting Ann Tree and young Mike Jr., into protective custody before diving back into the list of names. Next up is a Mary Smithers, who when Ms. Tree attempts to call it her business number, is told now goes by her married name, Mary Worth. Now Mary Worth was someone Ms. Tree had gone to for information previously. She's a fellow assistant DA like the now-murdered Carl Edwards, but unlike her comic strip namesake, this Mary Worth had nothing helpful to say. Well, when Michael drops in on the Worth home for a second go round with Mary, she finds the Worths packing. They're heading out of town for their own protection, though this whole situation comes as something of a shock, it seems, to Mr. Worth. He obviously has no idea what's going on. Well, Ms. Tree demands to know exactly what's been going on. And what has the assistant DA been looking into? And how did that involve Mike Tree? Mary Worth is still hesitant to offer anything, but when Michael gets a little rough grabbing her by the collar, Mary caves. Assistant D.A. Edwards had hired Mike Tree to look into corruption of the city's leadership, including Edwards and Worth's boss, the district attorney. It appears that certain cases involving the mob had failed to go to trial. Evidence had mysteriously disappeared. While Michael asks Mary Worth to review the list of names in her copy of the address book, She checks in at the office. Roger Fremont has woken from his coma and has been asking for her. Maryworth confirms the names in the book are a list of informants, witnesses, many of them government employees. The book is basically the case that Edwards and Mike Tree had been building. Michael gets married to agree from the safety of an out-of-town motel room to warn the remaining names in the book that their lives are in danger, while she looks in on Roger Fremont at the hospital. Just outside Roger's room, a detective Hartog tells Ms. Tree that Roger's had a relapse and that she should wait downstairs. He'll notify her if anything changes. Michael walks away, but this latest development just doesn't sit well with her. She returns to the room to find Hartog just about to inject Roger with some hypodermic. Caught in the act, Hartog hurls the needle at Michael. And gets her in the arm. But as Hartog attempts to flee like a freaking boss, Michael yanks the needle out and jams it into Hartog's calf. She threatens to press the plunger, not knowing what was in the syringe. Unless Hartog gives some answers, which he does, but between panels. A conscious Roger Fremont tells his side of the story, also between panels. Hartog is surrendered to an internal affairs police officer. And Michael tells Roger that, one, the information she now has, still a secret from us readers, she's going to handle the situation herself. And two, when he's recovered, he's back on the team. Michael heads to Chick Steele's place. He's surprised to see her and asks her, what's up? She replies, your hands, fuck. Yeah, she said it. The F-dash-dash-dash-dash-word. dash 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 Collins gives Ms. Tree such wonderfully snappy lines at times. I'm not necessarily sure it's always realistic dialogue, but it's awfully fun to read. Holding steel at gunpoint, Michael reveals all she knows. She's sick with the thought that she'd earlier shared a bed with the man who had her husband killed. Chick Steele had for some time been in bed himself with the mob. In fact, it was his partner and friend's corruption which had driven Mike Tree from the police force in the first place. It was Steele who ransacked Mike Tree's apartment, looking for that address book, the record of the case against him. It was Steele who brought in Hartog, a fellow crooked cop, to finally steal the address book, giving Michael the nasty bruise on her face that she still wears. Chick Steele can deny none of this. Going back on her promise to put her husband's killer in the ground, though, Michael calls the cops. The real cops. Steele begs her to shoot him, though. He can't stand the thought of a prison filled with some people he may have helped put there. Ms. Tree, her slightly dark sense of justice to the fore, thinks this is a fitting fate, anticipating some nasty things in Chick Steele's near future. At the story's close, Michael reflects on the case at Mike Tree's gravesite and there runs into Ann Tree and young Mike Jr. Ann asks Michael to talk to the boy. It's worried Ann that Mike hasn't expressed any grief for his father's death, even though they had known each other for just a short time. Ms. Tree approaches the boy, tells him she, she misses his father too. And the two Michael Trees have a good cry. For Mickey is lettered under the last panel of the story. And I have to assume that's for Mickey Spillane, the crime writer who, at the time of this story's publication, was still cranking out Mike Hammer novels. Hammer is the quintessential hard-boiled detective, maybe not enjoying the violence and killing that goes along with the job, but perhaps getting a kind of sick satisfaction out of it. Max Allen Collins is obviously a fan and in a way patterned mystery after Hammer. Though we only get a hint here in this first arc of the gusto with which Michael would carry out her profession, blowing away bad guys along the way. I think in part Collins was actually entrusted with finishing up several Mike Hammer novels that were incomplete at the time of Mickey Spillane's death because he did such a good job of aping Spillane with his own iconic hard boiled PI. Now, as I said, eye for an eye, this first mystery Tree Serial's an enjoyable, well constructed mystery story. I can't say I was blown away by the surprise villain. Chick Steele's outing didn't shock me, nor did I expect it. Uh, but I love the use of the address book to organize the story it was more than a it was more than a MacGuffin it was almost like a, a how-to a procedural for Ms. Tree to follow to crack this case the final gift from Mike final chapter here really filled out that, that double page count I think it was a great tryout like a bridge into the forthcoming Ms. Tree ongoing where the stories were typically around this length, 16, 17 pages. Taken as a whole, Eye for an Eye is a prototypical comics origin story, as primal as Batman's. The murder of a loved one provides the catalyst to sustain a lengthy career, avenging that death, mowing down mobsters, murderers, thugs, and assorted other no-good-nicks. Eye for an Eye and the successive Ms. Tree's solo series I'd place right up there with any of the classic series to debut in the early 80s. This arc would eventually be collected in trade, the first volume of The Files of Ms. Tree, but those collections can be really hard to find. If anything, I'd recommend trying to track down these original Eclipse magazines. They can be had for a few bucks each, and considering the range, the amount of content you get in each issue, Eclipse magazine I think is a really good value. Like any other strong comic book origin, it lends itself, or maybe better said it, can survive retellings and reboots. This opening arc was also retold in expanded and updated form in Max Collins' 2007 mystery novel Deadly Beloved, which is a cool little curio, which I'd recommend checking out if you're interested. Look for that pulpy, chiaroscuro, Terry Beatty cover painting. I'll be putting up some of Terry Beatty's images from these issues on the show's blog. I'm thegun.blogspot.com. There you will also find contact info should you want to talk any more Tree. In the meantime, I want to uh, thank folks who helped promote the last episode of Tree Theater on Twitter, where I'm often found trolling. Tree got likes and retweets from Chris of Bat Books for Beginners. He wrote, uh, I love the Mistree podcast. I love the character. Great coverage of those old Eclipse magazines. I'll have to find my buried copies now. Now, I love that comment. It thrills me, assuming Chris actually wants to dig out those old copies of Eclipse magazine or Mistree, influenced even the tiniest bit by this podcast. That makes me happy because that's exactly what I want to get, and often do, out of the comics podcast that I listen to. I want to be inspired to dig into my long boxes to revisit some neglected issue or story in my collection or even sometimes to make a new purchase based on the recommendation of a podcast or so. Thanks, Chris. I don't produce this show specifically to get messages and comments like that, but it definitely makes it a little more worthwhile when they, when they do show up. Likes and retweets continue from Chris Sheehan of Chris's On Infinite Earths. Coffee and Comics Podcast, Jeffrey Brown, Joe Crawford of the Tumblr for the Non-Discerning Reader, Legacy Brand Comics, who added the comment, Love me some Ms. Tree, my 90-year-old grandmother is an even bigger fan. Got her hooked back in the 80s. i left some issues lying around. That is awesome. Relatively Geeky, Professor Allen referring to the fact that uh, episode zero of the show featured Ms. Tree's final appearance in comics insisted that recording episodes in reverse chronological order would make the podcast stand out more but uh i'm not sure about that and xenozoic xenophiles one of darren and ruth sutherland's rad adventures podcast a nice email from darren who was excited to hear that i was starting my mystery coverage from the very beginning he writes i enjoyed hearing you and professor allen cover those later issues a few months ago but Hearing you recap and review the stories from the beginning will be delightful as proven by your most recent episode. Excellent job on the summaries and commentary, look forward to following along as you discuss this great series. And throw in occasional tangents like Robotech hairstyles. Speaking of Robotech hairstyles, in the previous episode I mentioned how Ms. Tree's interesting hair design made me think of Lisa Hayes' awful do in Robotech 2 The Sentinels. This caught the attention of Dr. Ange, who commented on the blog. I don't have much to add to a mystery discussion, unfortunately. That said, the pages you posted are beautiful and could be storyboards for a film noir. But Robotech hairstyles? This I could talk at length about. I was always a Lisa Hayes guy, not a Min fan. In her original hairdo, the large cascading cinnamon rolls over the shoulders were a fave of mine. I had nothing but high, high, high hopes for Robotech 2 The Sentinels, but Lisa's wonky hair was the least of my concerns with that show. It just didn't live up to the original. My favorite Robotech character was Dana Sterling. One might even say she was my Robotech crush, if such a thing exists. It does. Her hairstyle seems like a dollop of whipped cream, nothing fashionable really, but it was who she was and that endeared her to me. Yeah, I like Dana a lot too, Ange, but I, I was always a Lisa guy. And you're right, Sentinels was not great, bad hairstyles or not. I rarely ever, in fact, I don't ever revisit the VHS copy of the pilot I own, despite going back to the original series every couple of years. And thanks for writing in, I'm always up for talking a little Robotech. And thank you, likers, retweeters, and especially listeners. Okay, that's it for Mystery Theater, Episode 2. So until next time, take care.